Welcome to a new episode of the Noted Podcast, hosted by myself, Pierre Shard, and Michael Goldstein. Michael was at the premiere of the New Radical, so he is not with us on this episode. He does have a review of the New Radical. He says it was very cerebral, and for those of us who were around for the whole thing, it was a great blast from the past. So I definitely recommend everyone checking out the New Radical it's available on demand, streaming, online. Google it. We'll put it in the show notes. This is an audio recording of the live YouTube Q&A show I did with Preston Pish earlier this week. We'll have our next live Q&A on Monday, December 11th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Today's episode is focused on the financial and economic narratives in Bitcoin, though we do answer a few technical questions. Preston hosts the Investors Podcast with Stig Broderson, where they discuss financial markets from a value investor's point of view. Preston is a graduate of West Point. He has had a distinguished military career and is currently getting his MBA at Johns Hopkins University. Let's jump right in. All right. Uh, here we are. We're live um, with Pierre Richard. The point that Pierre and I have is to really kind of raise awareness, talk about what's going on out there in, in Bitcoin land, and to really answer questions from people as they're going through this. Maybe they're new, maybe they're advanced. Go ahead and pop it into the live chat. We have, we're, we're monitoring that so we can see it. Um, in the meantime, what we want to do is just talk about some of the things that are happening right now. So I'm a fan of Trace Mayer. Since I've been in this space, Trace has always been spot on with the stuff that he's putting out there. The fact that he's been in the space since the very beginning, I think, gives him a lot of uh, credence. You know, you look back to 2008, the thing that, that I admire about Trace is he saw this coming way before I ever saw any of this stuff coming. Because, I mean, he wrote a book back in 2008 about gold before Bitcoin was out there. So I've been following Trace very closely. This week, Trace pumped out an article talking about the price and what he thinks the price is as far as high, low, wherever. And he uses this metric that he talks about a lot, which is how far over the, is the price compared to the 200-day moving average. I personally like this. And for anybody, for people listening to this that don't know me, uh, I'm a hardcore value investor. And uh, this momentum stuff, I'm learning. And one of the things that kind of makes sense to me is the way that that trace is going about thinking through this so uh whenever i want to what i want to do is i want to show people a chart first of all and i want to put this chart up here because this is as far as i'm concerned this is the big picture in my mind when i'm thinking through where this could all go and so let me um let me share my screen and for people that are listening to this the chart that i'm showing is a chart of uh metcalf's law and for people that are in the space, they know what this uh, chart is. For people that aren't in this space, um, I would recommend that you look at one of our Twitter handles and you'll be able to see it uh, if you're listening to this through the podcast afterwards. But what I'm showing here is Metcalf's Law, and it's this you know giant line <laughs> that just goes like a rocket ship. And what this is, is this is a network effect. This is uh, adoption rates on a global level. And so the chart that I'm showing you right now, this was pulled from Tur de Maester, who uh, I also follow, who I think is uh, one of the great thinkers in this space. 
And this was a this was a chart that Tur had in a presentation that he gave back in 2014. And as you can see, the green there ends at the end of 2014. And this was the price projections back then. And I'm sure people who saw these price projections back in 2014 would have looked at the end of 2017 and said, there's no way this thing's going to be at $10,000 then. Or, or some people would have, but uh, a lot of people might not have. And when you look at where this is at, it's literally on the money of this projection that from Metcalf's Law uh, that's interpolated onto this chart. So whenever I'm thinking through price, and um, it's very hard because anyone who's been in Bitcoin for more than 10 seconds realizes that the price could go down 60% tomorrow. And then it could go up another 60% or 100% or whatever. It goes wild. It's all over the place. It's one of the most volatile things I've ever seen in my life. It's really important for you to keep that in the back of your mind as the volatility is all over the place. And I think that this is something really important for people to think about and to understand. So Pierre, I'm sure you have a lot to talk about with respect to network effects or anything about this chart. So I think that when people see that chart and they just see the 12-month chart of Bitcoin, their immediate reaction is tulips. Like this is a speculative mania that is driven entirely by greater fool theory and you're just depending on the fact that someone else is going to buy this off of you at a later point. And I think that they have to contend with the fact that Bitcoin has had these run-ups repeatedly and every one of them has reached a new all-time high. So already we have to think about, well, why, why isn't that the case with tulips? Why isn't that the case with any other asset class where you have back-to-back -back massive bubbles, quote-unquote, that each reach a new all-time high? And I think that the, the resolution to that, that unprecedented pattern is that there are real fundamentals driving the underlying value of the asset. And then you know, we can dive into what those fundamentals are. But I, I bring that up because I don't think that we can so easily write this off as just a behavioral issue of bulls and bears or um, what, what did Cain say with the animal spirits? Uh, I, I, it's not just purely psychological. And I think my view is that the fundamentals are that we're seeing the monetization of an asset from being worth $0 to being worth an, basically an infinite amount of dollars if my theory about Bitcoin replacing dollars is correct. And we're seeing that in a span of, you know, we, we've only been around since 2009, Preston. Yeah, no, I just have a point about the about the top side of it. Like, honestly, what do you think is a conservative? And that's how I like to look at it is like, what do you think yeah. the conservative end of this is? And whenever I think through that, I think, you know, on the really low end, if I had to be extreme on the low end, I think it's a trillion dollars at the at like if you had to be ridiculously low, I would say a trillion dollars per on, Bitcoin per uh, for the market cap. On the yeah, yeah, time. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. On the on the high end, I would say you know something crazy. I think you're you know you could go up to twenty or thirty or even forty trillion. I think on the high end, I think you start getting into that, 
Um, I don't know that I buy it, but I'll I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> I guess that would be the approach. Yeah. You know, when I'm when I'm thinking through the value piece of it, and just so people know that that chart that I just put up there, um, I would estimate because at the at the tail end of it, I think it goes out to 2024. It's estimating a value of around six hundred thousand, seven hundred thousand dollars per Bitcoin, which would probably be you know, this is all ballparking in my head. I would think that's about six trillion or seven trillion dollars, if I had to guess, somewhere around there. So, um, and and don't quote me on the numbers. They're they're somewhere around in that ballpark. So if that's off, or if it doesn't go to six or seven trillion dollars, then that chart that we just showed you is going to be lower than that. It's not going to be nearly as high. And so that's what the name of the game really comes down to: is where where is this market cap going to eventually lie? So I'm curious to hear what you think on your high and low end estimates of where this would be. And I would put a five percentile on on both of the high and the low side of that. What would you say it is, Pierre? Yeah, well, just to frame the analysis, I think that the, the comparables are very difficult to find. Um, if we compare it to gold, I think that the the reason that comparable is flawed is that the higher the big, the gold price goes, the more people mine gold and the more gold is created. And that kind of puts a big damper on the upside on gold. Uh, there's just a lot of gold on planet Earth, deep under the you know under the ground uh, that miners will gladly dig up at whatever price. Uh, whereas that's not the case with Bitcoin. The higher the price of Bitcoin goes, the harder it becomes to mine Bitcoin, uh, so that we maintain that steady schedule of new Bitcoins being created every ten minutes, uh, up to the point where there are twenty-one million. So I, I think that that comparable, if we would just take gold, you know, gold's supply or total monetary value today, um, I think that's a low number. And then if we look at global money supply of uh, fiat currencies, I think that that's a low number as well, you know, just looking at M1 and M2, because people have an incentive to not hold uh, monies that are inflationary. So it, any portfolio manager will tell you that holding cash is very expensive uh, because of that you know, minimum 2% inflation. And then on top of that, the opportunity cost of holding any other asset. So because no one wants to hold cash, I think that the M1 and M2 money supplies are much smaller than they would be if you had a currency that was very deflationary like Bitcoin is. Uh, so with that frame in mind, it's very hard to suggest how much purchasing power one Bitcoin will have in 50 years. Um, and it's actually, I find it almost easier to just look at that Metcalf graph and just assume that over the foreseeable future. And if, if we do assume that, and from a value investing point of view, that means we've got a big margin of safety. If we're saying that the conservative case is, you know, $300,000 per Bitcoin and the wildly speculative case is we don't have a price for it because all other currencies are eliminated and we actually can't conceive of how valuable one Bitcoin will be. Uh, so that's that's my perspective on that. So, no, and I totally agree with you. I think that, and I think for people listening, if you can say that you think that the low side is one trillion, well, you got a four x return from 
where you're at today, or you got a you got a nine x return from where you're at today, just from Bitcoin standpoint. And you know, I I saw a stat today. Somebody uh, said um, international exchange is a four trillion dollar a day marketplace. So you think about the way Bitcoin works. I mean, you talk about a use case. I mean, right there, um, paying a three dollar fee in today's fees. Um, and those might be adjusted with SegWit and everything else. So um, I, I don't know. I, th I think that it's important for people to understand the magnitude of how high this could go. And they can come up with their own arrays. You know, these are some of the things that we're talking about of, of different various market caps. I mean, here's, here's a figure for you, just to make it fun. Derivatives, $1.6 quadrillion. I could barely say it, quadrillion dollars. So this stuff is crazy. The, what we're trying to replace here is absolutely crazy. So, uh, you know, I'm a hardcore Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger guy. And one of the things that these two always talk about is temperament. And the reason that they talk about temperament and why it's so important is because if a person gets in, let's say a person gets in today at $10,000 of Bitcoin, which isn't, you know, that's a pretty high price. Even when you're comparing it to what Trace uses, which is, uh, you know, the 200-day moving average compared to the price, you're at like a 24 uh, X, uh, you're paying 2.4 times higher than the 200 day moving average, which is approximately $4,000 today at the end of November. So, um, I want to say that, uh, you know, I just did a probability plot on this and that's at about two Sigma. It's close to two Sigma, uh, as far as the price being high. Okay. So if that's where we're starting off on the price being two Sigma, uh, two standard deviations away from the average, uh, being the 200-day moving average. That's high. So if a person comes in today at $10,000 of Bitcoin, and it's their very first time that they're going to buy a Bitcoin, and the price goes down 60%, which, let me just throw out another stat for you, happens every quarter. Bitcoin goes down by 60% every quarter. So if you're stepping into this thing, and you don't know these, these numbers, and you're buying at 10000 and it goes down 60%, are you going to have the temperament, going back to the word, to continue to hold the position? And if you can't, or you even have hesitation that you can, I would tell you that you probably need to wait until you, you see a price point that isn't such a high multiple off the 200-day moving average. That might mean that you buy at $50,000 in the future, but at least you would be buying at a, at a point where you're, you're, uh, you're not going to have to test your temperament. And so I think that's a really, really important point for people to understand um, as they're looking at this and it gets more buzz. Because let me tell you, folks, my opinion might be dead wrong, but my opinion is in the next three years, this is all you're going to hear about. This is going to be um, this is going to be on so many financial news. This is going to be in the regular news. This is going to be what people are talking to you about nonstop in three years from now, because it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be a force to be reckoned with. In my personal opinion, I might be dead wrong, but um, that's important for people to think about the temperament piece and think about that multiple. Sorry to go so long, uh, Pierre. Let me hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that one approach to it is sizing. So start with a small bet it, while you're in the process of educating yourself about this space, understanding what the different cryptocurrencies are, what their developer communities are like, because 
it's it's kind of odd for investors to be concerned about an open source software project. Uh, usually, investors are concerned about 10Ks and 10Qs. So part of your due diligence is understanding what is the development process for this decentralized network that I'm buying into. Um, and then how do, even just on a more tangible level, how do I store my Bitcoins or whatever other asset I decide to, to purchase? You have to figure out what you're going to do with your private keys. Are you going to trust someone else with them? Or are you going to figure things out on your own, Google around, find some guides? And all of this is, is frankly, it's a multi-month to multi-year process of acclimating yourself to this new crypto world and learning the different lingo and seeing people, you know, follow people on Twitter, you know, create some throwaway account, follow people on Twitter and <laughs> just start taking note about who ends up being proven correct, like whose predictions play out and maybe give them a little more credence than other people who are promoting pump and dump scams etc. Um, but by starting with a small bet, I think that you can dip your toes into it. And then once you start feeling like the investment downside is, you know, within your risk appetite, uh, putting more in there that, frankly, that you can afford to lose, because this is uh, still a relatively unproven technology, even though I believe in it a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is a question here that I want to cover because uh, I think this one's really important. It seems like a lot of these projections assume that regulators and governments and other powerful externalities won't intervene. What kind of externalities does he believe would uh, seriously impact BTC? I like this question, and I think that this is something that could absolutely impact this, um, mostly from an exchange level. So we saw this in China. Uh, the Chinese government comes out. And um, they said, shut down all the exchanges. And they did. And so immediately you had uh, you know, all these people that were taking the fiat currency, the, the yuan in, in China, they now cannot swap that into Bitcoin or any other crypto coin in the country. So I think there's going to be a lot of governments that do this. And I think there's going to be a lot of governments that feel the burn after they've had this in place for a couple of years. And what I mean by that is there's going to be countries that don't implement these types of laws. And what you're going to find is those citizens are going to amass this stuff like crazy. Like I just saw uh, South Korea, second biggest bank in South Korea is now going to allow Bitcoin uh, swaps from their local fiat currency, the, the won, um, over in South Korea. That is huge. That is crazy. That is absolutely crazy. So you have some countries that are very pro, like a accepting of this, and you have ones that aren't. And I think the ones that aren't are going to have to reverse that position um, as the longer they sit in that in that state as they see this thing take off. Because I mean, let's think about the al the alternatives. Okay, what are the other options for those citizens inside of that country? They can go invest, like China. Do you want to go invest in real estate in China? Good luck with that one. Do you want to invest in bonds, fixed income bonds around the world? I mean, look at the bond yields over in Japan. What are those? Zero? Negative percent? Negative percent. So let me give you 100 bucks, and you can give me $99 back. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, look, at the, look at the equity markets. You know what the equity markets are priced at? You know, it's a Schiller PE of 30, so it's priced at about a 3% return if you're buying that. So do you want a 3% annual return? 
I don't think so. So this is why I think, and this isn't just in the U.S., this is all over the place. This is everywhere you look, because none of these central banks have been pegging their currencies since you know the U.S. came off the gold standard in 71. So there's a lot of interesting things happening, and I, and I like that argument, and I think that um, it is going to happen. I think that you're going to see a lot of governments that do intervene and, and try to prevent this stuff from happening, and then there's going to be some governments that don't. And I think that um, as time marches on, I think that the truth in all this is going to come out. And uh, I might be dead wrong, but that's my opinion. I'm curious to hear what, uh, what Pierre thinks. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Uh, there's, there's so many countries that are not into financially repressing their people. And on top of that, what better argument for Bitcoin than the fact that your country is trying to, that your government is trying to ban it. I think that it reflects that, first of all, in China, it's not like they had a referendum or it's not a democracy. It's a totalitarian communist state. Now, granted, they've been liberalizing quite a bit, but if your government can wield such arbitrary power, that means that they can strip you of your wealth in such an arbitrary manner. And we've, we've seen it in Russia, for example. A lot of uh, Russian billionaires and millionaires uh, had their companies seized from them for political reasons. And same thing in Saudi Arabia. We saw some of the Saudi princes were accused of corruption. I don't know. They don't have a due process system like we have. And so, boom, they're locked up in a hotel and they're stripped of their wealth. And I think that all of these events prove the use case for Bitcoin is that you can move your wealth into a digital format and thus send it instantly anywhere in the world at a very, very low cost compared to the alternatives of buying gold bricks and shipping those. Uh, especially because those, if, if you were to try to ship gold out of China or you know do something like that, they can they can seize that at the border. But with Bitcoin, it can just be an innocuous piece of paper that you have your private key written down on, and they wouldn't be any the wiser. So I think that the more governments try to push back on Bitcoin, the more it clues people in on hey, there's something uh, real here that we should be interested in if the government is trying to prevent us from buying it. Hey, uh, Pierre, I wanted to throw up the uh, chart that I have for the uh, the various multiples and then kind of where they're at from a statistics standpoint so people kind of understand where we're at today. So we talked the big picture with uh, the Metcalf's Law. We put that up there so people could see, you know, in, in five years, where do you expect the price to be, that kind of stuff. But let's talk about today, because I'm sure a lot of people here in November of 2017 want to know uh, what we're thinking on the price. And so my personal opinion is that it's it's kind of high. This price is a little uncomfortable uh, for the time being. Uh, and when I say high, you got to realize I'm saying it's high relative to about a one to four month span of time in, in 2017 in the fourth quarter. So let me share my screen here and pull up this chart. Now, the reason I got this idea for this chart is completely from Trace Mayer. Trace Mayer is talking about the multiple over the 200-day moving average. He put up like a couple, uh, a couple of uh, just different quadrants, 
And I kind of took it to a different level here by taking every single uh, price for since the inception of Bitcoin. I plotted it. I used some statistical models to come up with this chart that I have here. So whenever, let me just, because I'm sure this looks very confusing. Uh, but let me just say this. The, the average price multiple over the 200-day moving average, and the 200-day moving average is 4,000, is a 1.44. So if the price is, you take whatever the 200-day moving average is, multiply it by 1.44, and that's what I would say is probably a fair price at that specific moment in time um, based on the, the history of this and the distribution of this. When you start getting to a multiple above 2.75, uh, that's about a two standard deviation uh, away from the, uh, the, the mean. When you get to a 5.75 multiple, you are three standard deviations away. And just so people understand how rare that is, there's only been seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 days in the history of Bitcoin that there's been a multiple that high. So that's really important for people to understand. Um, you know, I think this kind of speaks for itself. Now, the lowest multiples that we've seen um, are in the range between uh, 0.25 and 0.5, and there's only been four days that the multiple has been that low. So if you ever get an opportunity and you see the price that low, um, there's one of two things happening. You're getting a, an enormous opportunity, or everything's going to collapse, and this thing's a total failure, and the experiment's over. Um, so those are some things to think about and, uh, for people to understand as they're going through this, I think that kind of, that kind of information is useful. So when you looked at where we're at today, just to kind of give people an idea, um, we're at 2.4, I want to say the, the multiple over the 200 day average. And so you're approaching, you're very close to a two standard deviation away from the mean on this, which is a high multiple. That doesn't mean it can't go higher. I mean, the, the animal spirits that exist inside of this community are something I have never seen in my entire life of being in the markets for, you know, pushing two decades at this point. I have never seen anything like this. And, uh, you know, just because it's two standard deviations doesn't mean it couldn't go higher. So, but I would tell you going back to our original discussion about temperament, be careful. If you're trying to get in right now, take Pierre's advice, go very slowly and get comfortable, learn how to secure your private keys, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's a high multiple right now, so be careful. Yeah, and I think that something that's interesting with regards to temperament is that within the Bitcoin community, there's a dogma, an ideology that has evolved around what's called hodling, which uh, started with someone drunkenly posting on the Bitcoin talk forums and misspelling hold. Uh, he said, I, I'm going to hodl. And this has become a common phrase you'll hear in Bitcoin. But basically, it means never parting with your Bitcoins or only very reluctantly doing so. So that that's kind of a, a hard-won lesson for a lot of people who have tried trading around these massive swings in the multiples uh, and hoping to get lucky. But when you look at that graph, boy, you you could think that you got lucky one day and then the next day you're completely wiped out. Um, so the, 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 the ideology of hodling has developed over the years from so many people posting 
on social media about how they lost everything by trying to time the market. And I know that in the traditional investment community, it that that is also emphasized, you know, that you should be buying for the long term and have kind of a 30-year horizon for your investments. And I, I would say that it's it's even it's 10 times more uh pressing in Bitcoin. Yeah. Hey, there's a lot of chatter in the uh in the comments section there talking about the forks. Can you explain to everyone how the forks work? And uh there's some people talking about Raul Powell and in Raul's thesis yeah. that uh, just tell people about Raoul's thesis, and then let's talk about the forks, because I think this is an interesting discussion. So Raoul's thesis is two-pronged. Uh, on the one hand, it's that because there is the possibility of a hard fork, the 21 million Bitcoin cap could one day be changed, and thus it would ruin Bitcoin's investment thesis of being a very scarce commodity that can turn into sound money. And so let's let's tackle that one first. And to for such a hard fork to be successful, you would have to have the preponderance of bitcoiners to go along with it. I there's it's not like a democracy where there's a bright line rule of if you get above 50% then you can change all the rules. Uh, it's much more like a language, like English. If you decided to create a new word in English, uh, it would take a while for that to catch on for, and for people to know what the hell you're talking about because you just invented a new word that is unrelated to any other word. And so it's more of a social consensus. The, the rules in Bitcoin are a social consensus that is enforced by a network of software talking to each other. So it seems very unlikely to me that the 21 million Bitcoin cap would change. Um, there would have to be some underlying technical reason where the alternative to changing it would be the collapse of Bitcoin. And I just, from an economic perspective and from a software engineering perspective, that's really not conceivable. Um, the other the game theory on it, the, the game theory on it, I think, prevents that from happening. I think that it's so uh, well orchestrated as far as the game theory that the competing interests just will not allow something like that to happen. I think my personal opinion is Raul's concern was more if anyone can fork it, then there's going to be all these these other chains that that go out of it. And, you know, it's going to dilute. It's almost like a like a company that's diluting its shares. I think that's his concern when he's when he's thinking. Yeah. So that's actually that's the second prong of uh, his argument. And well, just to go back to to the previous one about the cap, um, we have been trying to change a much smaller variable, which is the maximum block size limit, and that has been proven to be. It seems so far to be impossible to change, and that's not even like really nearly yeah. as big of a change as changing the 21 million bitcoins yeah so uh, yeah i think the game theory there is is completely in the favor of the money pol monetary policy continuing uh the way it was set by satoshi at the very beginning uh, and then yes yeah, so the secondary concern is that people are creating forks of bitcoin and this is in a sense it's not new right because people have been creating altcoins 
since the beginning. And Litecoin was one of the first altcoins. And there's going to be a continuous process of people trying to launch their own coin. The quote-unquote innovation we saw with essentially altcoins launching off of the Bitcoin network. And what they do is they say, all right, everyone who owned one Bitcoin at this point of time now also owns one unit of this other currency. And, you know, that's called an airdrop. You'll, you'll hear that phrase where basically they're, they're, they're airdropping this on uh, the Bitcoin hodlers. And the theory is that these airdrops dilute Bitcoin because if you have 21 million Bitcoins today, if tomorrow you have 21 million Bitcoins plus 21 million Bitcoin cash, different, different network, they're not fungible across the networks. So uh, I think that's why I, I, I think that's where the the criticism is kind of falls apart, which is that you can't send bitcoins to the Bitcoin Cash network uh, or to someone giving you a Bitcoin Cash address. If you do that, you'll essentially lose your bitcoins because they they're they're incompatible networks yeah. in that regard. Uh, so that's why I don't think it's inflationary. Uh, I think that what will end up happening and what is ending up happening is that the the social consensus around Bitcoin strengthens when people spin off on t- into their own community um, and form their own new consensus around a different coin. And their their best shot at relevance is taking on the name Bitcoin and trying to become the biggest, uh, you know, version of Bitcoin, which I, th- I wish them luck because when we were looking at the Metcalf graph, that graph comes from the fact that Metcalf's law is, is a law about the value of networks. And Bitcoin, due to the fact that it was the first successful cryptocurrency, there were unsuccessful ones before the first successful one that proved itself to be decentralized and sustainable due to the fact that it was the first it has taken a massive lead in building a network and in having all of this infrastructure around it and having all this social consensus around it that i think that it would be very hard for a altcoin to take market share from it at this point and really their last chance was these hard forks uh but that seems to not be working out so well you know so this is this is what i think about whenever i think about all the forks and you know people might think that i'm too bullish with some of my comments but this is how i see it if everyone starts forking off a bitcoin what are the exchanges going to do because at the end of the day, people want to come in and out of fiat. That's just a fact. That's going to happen. And so if the exchanges don't support the, the new hard fork to, you know, whatever coin this one is, you know, whatever the next one rolls out, how is that, how is a person who then takes that coin going to swap it into, into fiat or anything else? So the, what I think is going to really kind of play out is if the coin is offered on an exchange at a... Uh, you know, at a, at a high level in the U.S. and all these other countries, Australia and everywhere else, if it's readily available to be swapped in the fiat currency, that is a huge network effect for that protocol. 
So, um, you know, when I look at that scenario, look at Coinbase, they have three, they got Ethereum, Bitcoin and Litecoin. That's it. So you can fork Bitcoin as much as you want, but if you can't, if it's not listed on exchange, where are you going to go with it? Well, where people are going to go with it today, they're going to shapeshift, but in the future, they're just going to do an atomic swap back into to Bitcoin. So I think that's really important for people to understand because these, these exchanges are already sick of the forks. They're sick of them. I can only imagine what they're going to feel like at the end of 2018. They're going to be really sick of it. And it's going to be, it's going to be to a point where legally they're just going to say, hey, it's your obligation to remove your Bitcoins from the exchange if you want to participate in a fork. That's what's going to happen. That's going to be legally into whatever you sign up when you create an account with Coinbase or whatever. That's my opinion. I think that's right. Uh, each one of these is a, a big engineering cost for the exchanges. And then it's a big customer support cost of having to handhold people through this uh, process of understanding even like, should I buy Bitcoin or should I buy Bitcoin Cash? It's like, well, that's very confusing from a user experience perspective uh, for someone who's new on an exchange. And on top of that, so I think that there's going to be dimish diminishing marginal returns for these hard forks. And the first one, Bitcoin Cash, is going to be, it has been successful, right? It, they have been able to retain, I think it, they're probably around like 15% of Bitcoin's value. And uh, they have gone through, you know, a big, they just, they went through a big, uh, you know, you want to call it a bubble, a run up to 40% before it uh, went back down. But it's very hard for them to compete uh, from that perspective, from the price perspective, because when the price of a hard fork goes up, like Bitcoin Cash did, it incentivizes everyone who holds Bitcoin Cash and who doesn't want to hold it to go sell it on an exchange. Uh, so the higher the price of Bitcoin Cash goes up, the more there is an incentive for people to take their keys out of cold storage and go dump it on an exchange. Uh, so there's kind of a counter cyclical effect there. And I think that they're actually better off starting a new network from scratch like a lot of the other altcoins did rather than trying to bootstrap off, off of Bitcoin. I think that's it's been more political than it has been a rational economic decision. Uh, Pierre, we're getting a lot of questions about Bitcoin Cash, yeah. better, better known as Bcash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Uh, do you want me to start off or do you want to go? Go ahead. Let's hear your opinion. Uh, all right. So the first question I'm seeing here is, does Bitcoin Cash have any technical advantages, protocol, mining, rate at which blocks are issued, et cetera? So the key difference between Bitcoin, there's two key differences between Bitcoin Cash or, you know, if we want to abbreviate it to Bcash and Bitcoin. Uh, Bcash does not have SegWit, which Bitcoin does. And what SegWit does, it's you can essentially think of it as a way of compressing the data so that uh, the scalability properties of the network are improved. And the second difference, which is kind of tangentially related, is that Bcash has a much higher block size limit. And what, what this block size limit does is it limits the number of transactions you can have per block. And the theory 
that Bitcoin Cash proponents put forth as to why this is an advantage is that the more transactions you have on chain, the more utility usefulness the uh, the token has, and thus inherently the fundamentals make it such that Bcash is more valuable than Bitcoin. So this is kind of um, it's it's a theory. Uh, it's yet to been proven in practice. I think that in practice the on-chain transactions is orthogonal and frankly uncorrelated to the value of the money. And the reason that is, is that there's so many other ways of scaling the payments aspect of it while still having it be denominated in Bitcoins. So there's cryptographic decentralized approaches like the Lightning Network that is currently being developed. And then there's centralized non-cryptographic approaches, which, for example, if you log into Coinbase and you send Bitcoins from one Coinbase user to another Coinbase user, those are not sent through the Bitcoin network. They're just entries in Coinbase's database. And so the, the Bcash proponents are very skeptical of both of those solutions uh, or both of those aspects of scaling. Uh, and you know, they 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 have valid arguments on their side. That's why that's why their coin is not worth zero dollars. Uh, but I think that we'll have to see the uh, data come in to really empirically refute their their ideology. So this is how I look at it, and you know I might be completely off base here, but if you don't stand for something, you stand for nothing. And so whenever I look at Bitcoin Cash, what is it that they're trying to solve? Okay. Roger Ver will tell you that he's trying to be the tr transactional currency. Okay. That's what he'll tell you. But his protocol tells you something different. Okay. So whenever I think through the protocols that currently exist, you got Bitcoin. Bitcoin is trying to be the most secure protocol on the planet. And the reason it's trying to be the most secure protocol on the planet is because it wants to, re it wants to become the unit of measure for the entire world and what central banks will transact in, in in 10, 20 years from now. That's the goal. And so you can't be that currency unless it's the most secure currency. So that's why Bitcoin refuses to have bigger blocks. It wants to stay small. It wants to implement SegWit so that it can push out and, and create an interest to develop that. Okay. So that's Bitcoin. So then let's look at a different layer, which would be the transaction layer. Bitcoin can still be the transaction layer, especially with SegWit in place. That can still happen. It's yet to be seen whether that'll happen, but it can still happen because SegWit's on board. But there's other, there's other protocols that currently exist that fill that void with great technical skill. Litecoin, Dash, they can do it quick. They can do it secure enough. Okay, because whenever I'm buying a coffee, am I really concerned about the the hundred dollars sitting in my account? Uh, my my Litecoins that I have, a hundred dollars worth of Litecoins. Of course not. If somebody hacks that, yeah, it sucks, but it's not like losing fifty million dollars that's secured with Bitcoin. So that's how I think through this. What is the problem that's being solved? Well, you have to start there because if you don't know what the problem is that you're solving, you can't design a protocol around it that that optimizes for that result. So whenever I look at Bitcoin Cash, they're caught in the middle of this. They've adopted a protocol, they've copied the, the protocol for the most secure platform, okay? 
and then they're trying to use it to solve the transactional layer. That makes no sense. That makes absolutely no sense. And for me, when I look at this and I look at the, the posts by Roger and I see, you know, I saw the pictures of what happened today. I mean, it was insane. And then you look at the people that he's running around with. He's running around with a guy who's renting Lamborghinis and acting like he's Satoshi Nakamoto. And then you got the, the McAfee guy. You know, these guys are a mess. These guys are an absolute mess. That's my vantage point. And, and you know what, guys? Bitcoin Cash could could miraculously become the, the currency that's adopted around the world. I don't know how this is going to play out. But from my vantage point, that's how I think th through things. And that's how I understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. But, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to see what the comments are and what people think. And, you know, if, if my comment, if I'm missing something, tell me on Twitter. You know, I like to be beat up. Like, if you're a troll, please come over to my Twitter account and tell me why I'm messed up or why I don't understand things. Because that's how I learn. Um, I, I seriously, I, I'm really open to that. In fact, I, I kind of enjoy it because it's, it helps me mentally spar and become stronger through, through the process. Uh, go ahead, Pierre. I want to hear what you got. Yeah, I think that the, the reason Bitcoin Cash is appealing to a lot of, uh, you know, to people like Roger Ver is they have a sense of nostalgia for what Bitcoin was like in the early days. And I think that the fact that Bitcoin has grown so much and evolved so much that now it's like when you're a parent and you see your young child become an adolescent and, you know, transform before your eyes, uh, you reminisce and you wish that you could go back in time. And that's what Bitcoin Cash is. It's a kind of a reactionary uh, push back against what Bitcoin is becoming. And the reason Bitcoin is evolving and changing is because the amount of value that it secures is increasing by orders of magnitude over the years. And thus, the you know we, we can't afford to have spam on the network like we could before. Uh, back in the day, we had things like Satoshi Dice, where basically people were just using junk transactions to gamble. And that's not an appropriate use for a the global ledger for sound money. Uh, and it does reduce Bitcoin security. You know, this was a brand play. This was this was 100% a brand play. Because when you think about what he was trying to do, from a protocol standpoint and from a performance and technical standpoint, it makes no sense whatsoever. And so what it was was he was trying to steal the the brand name. That's what it, that's what this was all about. And that's why they're and, and you know how you can prove that you can prove it because they get so insanely upset when you say Bcash. When you take the Bitcoin out of the name, they lose their minds, which further proves why all it was was a brand play. He was trying to to squeal off the brand and spin it off. And, uh, you know, I, I feel bad for the guy because I think at the end of the day, well, I can't say I feel bad for him because some of the stuff that's going on is crazy. But um, at the end of the day, I think he's going to get just crushed um, from what he, what he had to what he has now. He's still going to be an extremely wealthy person because he had so many Bitcoins. But, um, you know, trans transitioning those into Bcash, man, he's the only reason that the price is up. He's, he's buying his own... He's buying his own market right now. It's hilarious to watch. I just I can't understand why anyone put themselves through so much pain. I don't get it. Well, it, he he has an ideology, right? And it's uh, we've seen people outside of crypto with ideologies and uh, you know spending their money on 
ideological causes. Uh, it, I don't think it's wise. I, I think that he should probably try to think of ways of how he might be wrong rather than constantly, you know, debating and repeating his uh, stale talking points. Yep. But yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's not. Next. Let, let's see if there's another question. <laughs> Next. All right. Uh, the thing I wanted to talk about was the CME stuff. I don't know. I think we had a question earlier about CME. Yes. Uh, I think this is really important, and I think that this, uh, I think this is a bull case. But if I had to stick a probability on it, I have no idea because I'll tell you, there's um, you talk to people in New York, and I have a lot of people on. Um, so it's it's really interesting my social media accounts. So on LinkedIn, I have a whole different crowd of people than on Twitter. And I started making a, a couple Bitcoin posts on LinkedIn. And let me tell you, every person that I'm connected with from Wall Street, and I've got a lot of them in my, in my network through LinkedIn, dude, they were having none of it. I mean, absolutely none of it. And so like my concern moving forward, and um, you know, I, I think of everything through the probabilities of how this could play out. I think a lot of them are huge bears on this stuff. And I think they're looking at the price at 10K and they're saying, this is nuts. I will short this in a second. And um, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, I, I know it's cash settled. There's no delivery of these things, which I think really kind of plays a whole nother element. I think in the future, there will be physical delivery of these. I mean, why wouldn't there be? It's the easiest thing to physically deliver on the planet. So I think they're going to get there. But I think to roll this out as quickly as possible, they did the cash settlement. And so... You know, if I was going to throw a probability on this, whether this is a bull case or a bear case, dude, I'm at a split. I'm not going to say one way or the other, but I can tell you, I'm very hopeful that it's a bull case, but I, I have no idea. I, I, it would be one thing if they were releasing this when the market was going sideways, then I'd say, well, you know, it's a toss up as to whether it's a bull case or a bear case. But if they're releasing this into a run up, and it seems as though this run-up is not out of steam yet. Um, and, let, well, let's just say, like, let's just throw a number out there. Let's say that the top is going to be $25,000. Yeah. And then, you know, we enter into another bear market, which might be, you know, a year, 18 months, or whatever, maybe. So um, in that run-up, if you have the Wall Street people that you were describing, and actually, it's funny, my... My brother-in-law, when he first heard about Bitcoin, like his reaction was, how do I short it? And he's very fortunate that there was no way to short it because it was at like $200 at the time. <laughs> uh, so they're going to get their faces ripped off. If they go out and sell a bunch of contracts and you know they're going to be constantly getting margin calls on the way up and the cash is going to be transferred from the bears to the bulls. And I think that it, even without physical settlement or anything like that, I think that 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 wealth transfer from foolhardy folks who think that they know better than the market uh, to Bitcoin bulls is uh, going to increase the amount of cash. It, you know, if money is going into the hands of bulls, even if it's fiat, they're going to go buy bitcoins with it. The physical underlying. Um, and on top of that, you have another platform called LedgerX, which is doing the physical settlement. And I think that CME made their move when they saw that LedgerX was attracting 
a tremendous amount of interest interest from trading desks on Wall Street, uh, whether on the long side or on the short side. Uh, so CME coming in is surprising to me, but really in the grand scheme of things, it was inevitable. Uh, it's it's a greater than $100 billion market at this point. You know, if the price does go to like what you suggested, which was like 25K, 30K, if it goes that high in a short amount of time, like in the within the first end of the first quarter, if it goes that high, you're just so people know you're at a three standard deviation move. And we've literally seen you can count them on one hand how many times it stayed above a three standard deviation move. And I'm not saying that it'll stop. It, it could go higher. It could go way higher. I don't I don't know. But I'm just trying to put out some stats and some probabilities for people so they kind of understand where they're at in space and time and probabilities as you're thinking through some of this stuff. And that's assuming now that's this is an important point. That's assuming that we stay at a four thousand um, dollar 200 day moving average. If it's if it happens in February and the 200 day moving average is higher, you still might be at maybe a two standard deviation. I don't know. You, that's listen, folks. You have to value it at at a point in time today. So we can talk about today. If you're listening to this in three months from now, things have changed. They're completely different. Um, you've got to learn how to to do the math and figure out this stuff because it's not simple stuff. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, I'm going to uh, put some effort into creating a Twitter bot that will tweet out these graphs so that we can have real-time updates as the weeks go by and that moving average drifts up. We can stay uh, abreast of what's going on without having to uh, create a spreadsheet every time. I love it. Dude, that spreadsheet took me forever. I, was, I had to dust off this, the stats skills. It was taking me some time. All right, so uh, let's talk about some other things here. Uh, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about with the derivative side is in the in the exchanges right now, I think that, um, and this is going to be different for CME because it's cash settled, but for the, for the exchanges that are not cash settled, that are actually, you have people lending their Bitcoins so that people can go short. I think that there's a real challenge for uh, on the short side of this because a lot of people, because of all these forks, People want to take their bitcoins off the exchanges. They want to they want to keep them in their hardware wallets so they can basically collect, let's call it a dividend from all these forks. And so what I think you're going to see here in 2018, and I might be wrong, this is just me surmising. I think in 2018, you're going to see a lot of people uh, not as willing to lend their bitcoins on the exchange for people to go short. And what that's going to end up doing is raising the price premium for people that want to short Bitcoin, which I think is a bull case. So when CME eventually evolves, I don't even know that CME is going to do this, but I would suspect that they're going to evolve to that model. I think that that further uh, increases the bull case for um, for the derivative side of this, the futures markets and stuff, um, as you move further out, maybe a year from now, if CME starts adopting that kind of stuff. But that's just an idea. I think it's something interesting to, to talk about. Yeah, and I actually think that even without physical settlement and just with cash settlement, you have a similar effect where if you're trying to arbitrage between the spot price today and the futures contract that's trading, and basically your arbitrage is that you want to buy the contract and sell the spot, you have to 
let go of your private keys and you got to go and, uh, you know, sell your Bitcoins on an exchange uh, so that you can buy the contract and have that risk-free arbitrage. And for the same reasons you outlined about the hard forks, but also just out of principle of, you know, hodling, <laughs> uh, there's going to be a lack of arbitragers that are essentially, um, you know, making sure that there's convergence between the spot price and the futures price. And we may see things kind of get out of whack and there may end up being fairly large profit opportunities for people who are willing to uh, part with their Bitcoins and engage in some arbitrage. So, Pierre, I got a question for you because um, I don't understand the code nearly as well as you do. Um, when this 2x fork happened, um, or the whole Jeff Garzik uh, Bitcoin one thing, and there when was it tried to happen when it tried to happen exactly. Um, there was there was a bug in the code. So my question for you would be this: Let's say that we're doing an upgrade, like a real upgrade in the future, and there's consensus for the upgrade. And let's just say that in in the upgrade it had a bug like the one that Jeff had had programmed. And it comes time for the block, and it doesn't happen. What happens at that point? Like, if 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 we were going to do an upgrade to Bitcoin one, okay, here in November, let's just say that that we had total consensus, and that would have happened. What would have what would have fallen out of all that? How would it have matured? Because for a person who does just a person who doesn't understand the code like you understand it, yeah. in my mind, as a, as a person who'd be listening to this and and hasn't invested, I'd be thinking. It's a total meltdown. Everything goes to zero at that point. So explain to people what really happens. So first off, you, you wouldn't be wrong with your intuition. The price would crash. Um, and the reason I, I, I know that to be true is because it has happened in the past. It happened exactly once. Um, well, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of modern Bitcoin history, it, it happened once in 2013 during an upgrade. And the network essentially uh, hard forked unintentionally. And so that's kind of, that's the most likely scenario of, is that you, because the network is a distributed peer-to-peer -peer network, not everyone upgrades at the same time. You kind of have like a, a slow rolling percentage of nodes are upgrading. And uh, same thing with uh, miners. And so if uh, some of the, the people upgrading end up hard forking, then you and the miners are hard forking where like half the miners are on one side of the half the miners have upgraded, the other half have not. And so you have two chains. So at that point, you have two options. Either you roll back the upgrade and you tell everyone, hey, go back to the previous version that we know was good and we'll just keep moving forward on that chain and we'll do a post-mortem and we'll figure out what happened and we'll we'll patch things up and try the upgrade again. Or you decide, okay, we know how to fix this. Let's fix the upgrade and uh, move forward based on the upgraded fork. Uh, I think that the best practice is to do a rollback and uh, that's what happened the last time we had an issue like this. Um, it, it would be a huge blow to the credibility of the developers. And I think that it would cause um, a, 
you know, it wouldn't, I, I don't think that it would reverse Bitcoin's network effect and create an opportunity for an altcoin to succeed. What I do think it would do would be to delay Bitcoin's success. Yeah. Uh, and so there would be kind of a, a period of time where we try to figure out what is the root cause? Did we not have enough engineering talent thrown at this? Is it just inherently so dangerous to do an upgrade that we should try to avoid ever doing one because it's so risky, et cetera? Um, but it, it would get fixed and the price would recover. The price recovered last time it happened. It was kind of a, it was like essentially like a flash crash and it quickly was back to where it was before because uh, fundamentally a, a glitch on the payment network that lasts for a few hours uh, does not affect the underlying economics of what we're dealing with here. So I got another question for you. <laughs> this is fun for me because I can ask a lot of the technical questions of stuff I don't know. So um, let's say I do a fork off of Bitcoin and um, Satoshi has never touched his portion of his Bitcoins. Could I reprogram the private keys so that I could own those Bitcoins in my new fork? Is that something that's even possible? Uh, with a hard fork, anything is possible. So you could absolutely do that. And there actually have been proposals about, um, well, one interesting one, uh, are you familiar with Ross Ulbricht and the Silk Road case? I'm, I'm familiar so, with Silk Road. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. So he had his Bitcoin seized by the government because uh, when he was arrested, his laptop was open and his private keys were, uh, you know, exposed and available for the government to take. <laughs> so uh, the they hard for to take the Bitcoins away, from, uh, essentially either destroy them or somehow give them back to Ross Gilbert. So uh, that never really gained any traction, but uh, the same thing has been proposed for after what Mt. Gox uh, did. And there's also been a proposal to, yeah, take Satoshi's Bitcoins away so that we have more certainty about what Bitcoins are alive, so to speak, because someone, Satoshi, let's say Satoshi mined all of these Bitcoins and, you know, they exist on a private key. Private key was destroyed. There's no way to ever recover them. And they may as well have never existed. And the uncertainty about whether the private keys were destroyed or whether they still exist and those coins could come on the market I think does actually depress the price of Bitcoin uh, some you know negligible, unknowable amount. Uh, so yeah, a hard fork could definitely uh, do anything and rewrite the entire history of Bitcoin or double the number of Bitcoins and put it all in your pocket. Uh, the problem is you'd have to get everyone else to go along with you, uh, which is so far pretty unrealistic. So let me just throw out a conspiracy theory. Yeah. <laughs> so Bitcoin Cash, how do we know that something wasn't done with the Satoshi block, especially considering you got a guy running around with like fake Lamborghinis and stuff saying that he's Satoshi? Yeah, so they, uh, they did, their hard fork was as of August 1st. And so we can cryptographically verify that everything before August 1st matches what is in Bitcoin. So uh, I think that we're fairly confident that there were no shenanigans in that regard. 
Um, and in fact, there's a different hard fork called Bitcoin Gold, where what they wanted to do was take a certain point in time and then mine for themselves for a period of time and, at, and then make it public. And so essentially that's, that's called a pre-mine yeah. and that way they would uh, financially benefit from the hard fork. I think that's, that's probably the, the better approach if you're going to do shenanigans like that. Yeah. Uh, and then the other conspiracy theory would be that Bitcoin Cash, when it first came out, it had something called an emergency difficulty adjustment, which me means essentially that uh, the miners were playing games with uh, the bit mining of Bitcoin Cash and if there were some insiders there, maybe they benefited from uh, that. Gotcha. Awesome. Uh, did you see any other questions that you wanted to, to hit on? Yeah. Uh, Eric Carlos had a question. Uh, how does Pierre believe that the core development process would work with so many new, loud, and influential voices in the mix? Can consensus still be achieved? Uh, that's a great question. Bit is the development process around the Git repository, which is basically where is the code that represents Bitcoin, uh, and that's 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 kind of a loaded explanation because there are different implementations of Bitcoin that are on paper compatible uh, with each other, but for the most part, most people run one implementation that if you go on github.com slash Bitcoin slash Bitcoin, uh, that's where it resides. And it's written in C++. It's maintained by a group of individuals who, you know, kind of freely associate together and the, their development process is called Bitcoin Core. And there have been kind of uh, inflow and outflow of developers in into and out of the project. So there's, it's like at a company, you know, there's a certain level of turnover as people lose interest in the development process or become interested. And to answer the question about new people coming in, it has not been a problem in the past. And I think that it'll continue not being a problem because someone who is coming into the Bitcoin core development process is self-selecting and they, in their minds, want to contribute to this project because, A, they want to contribute to the biggest crypto project out there. Uh, they might have a similar economic philosophy to ours of sound money and thus kind of have a political motive in that regard. Or uh, they are fascinated by the engineering challenge of it. But in, in any case, if they have a fundamental disagreement with the Bitcoin core development process with the other contributors to the project, then they are welcome to create a hard fork or to create an altcoin where they can express these disagreements if they believe that it gives their uh, altcoin a competitive advantage in the marketplace. So there's kind of a natural project people enter. So I, I don't think that that will uh, be an issue. I mean, that's what we just saw play out with Jeff, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there was, uh, yeah, there, there was uh, Mike Kern. And Mike Kern, uh, he decided to leave the Bitcoin Core project 
and start working on uh, privately owned blockchains uh, at a company called R3. So really, it's if you have philosophical differences, there's a lot of different uh, opportunities out there for developers to express them. Hey, so John Jackson wants to nerd out about the speculative attacks. Okay, so uh, speculative attacks, I think the phrase actually originated from uh, Paul Krugman, uh, interestingly enough. And basically, the a speculative attack is when you have a weak currency and a strong currency, and people are borrowing the weak currency in order to buy the strong currency. And this creates a feedback loop where when they are borrowing the weak currency, because of how the fractional reserve banking system works, they're creating new units of the weak currency and thus further weakening it. Uh, and then they're going out on the Forex markets and buying the strong currency and further strengthening it. Um, and so normally how a central bank prevents this from happening is that they raise the interest rate for borrowing the weak currency. And so by raising the interest rate, you know, it becomes more expensive to borrow and you can counteract this feedback. So, or stronger currency lowers their interest rate and prints more money so that they're no longer the stronger currency uh, and they devalue their currency. So uh, we, can, we can see how this would play out with Bitcoin. And the issue with Bitcoin is that it, my, my view is that Bitcoin has an interest rate. It's just freely floating. And, you know, we were talking about the 200-day moving average. And to me, that's basically, that's Bitcoin's interest rate. And the reason that's Bitcoin's interest rate is that that's the expected return from investors coming into the space. So if, you're if your expected return is 80% a year, then that means that the, the central bank of the weak currency has to raise their interest rate above 80%, which is unconscionable for any modern economy. Uh, and that's where I think the, the speculative attacks cause a phenomenon called hyper-Bitcoinization, where the, local, the, the weak currency collapses and is unsalvageable, and Bitcoin becomes the de facto currency. Yep. Now, this, this is something that I find uh, really interesting when you think about the impact that this is going to potentially have on financial assets. So you talk about fixed income bonds, you talk about equities, and you you know the expectation of everyone in the world is that interest rates are just going to keep going lower and lower. You know, we were, I was out at the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting this past May and people were asking Munger and Buffett about where they, where they saw interest rates going in the future. And these guys are just like, well, you know, it's, you know, our expectation is that it's going to, and they didn't come out and say this, but they were hinting around the idea, well, it's probably going to go lower. You know, interest rates are going to go lower because in their, in their mind, they're looking at the model that currently exists at this point in time that everyone understands, which is central banks are going to have to drop interest rates to reflate the economy and go through that whole disaster, quantitative easing, and buy back the bonds and put liquidity into the system. And so that's the expectation that everyone has. But if this actually starts maturing uh, the way that it appears to be maturing, 
and you start to see Bitcoin go over a trillion market cap, you know, a couple trillion market cap, all of a sudden people are not going to be looking at equities for a return, especially if central banks are trying to pump them even lower. Look, people, when you go and look at Japan, Japan is nationalizing, they're literally nationalizing equities over there. They've, they've almost bought all the bonds in existence, and now they're buying the entire stock market. They're nationalizing everything through quantitative easing. That's how crazy this is getting. So if you're an investor over there, what are you going to do? Are you going to, and now I just want people to hear these returns, okay? 2011, Bitcoin did 1,724% return for the year. 2012, 170% return. 2013, listen to this one, 5,838% for the year, okay? Now the next year, it was down 67%. I mean, you would kind of expect that to be down after a 583 or 5,838% return. That's like, hey, I'm going to put, you know, a dollar into the market and next year I'm going to have $5,000, almost $6,000. Then let's go to 2015, 37% return. 2016, 120% return. 2017, 701% to, uh, for this year so far. So what I'm, what I'm not saying is that those, can, that those returns are absolutely positively going to continue to happen. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, how much longer can that last with those kind of returns? Because we're coming up on a decade here, okay? How much longer can those returns last before people who are sitting in stocks that are probably going to get about a 3% return or bonds getting a negative percent return in Japan are going to step away from that and say, you know, maybe I'm just going to take 1% of my net worth or 10% of my net worth and try this thing out. I mean, what do I have to lose? If I keep my money in the bank right now, I'm losing money, literally. And so I just don't know how much longer that can last. I, you know, I think it might go another year or two before this, this starts to blow the lid off of things if this, if this thing can continue to march along. And it's interesting to think about the, the game theory is that if you work for the government and you see this coming, why wouldn't you just go and buy Bitcoins? Why, why would you sit on your hands or even why would you try to pass policy against it if you realize that that policy is going to be ineffective because this is a global phenomena and there's no way you're going to be able to get everyone on the same page about somehow banning Bitcoin or acting against it in, in concert? Uh, there, there will always be a defector and there will always be a black market. So I think that government employees are, are I, I know government employees who own Bitcoins. Yeah. Now, I mean, and they'll contact me and they'll be like, hey, look, we, we don't want to talk about it, but that's what's going on. Dude, I had the craziest experience happen to me. So um, this summer I was flying back from South Korea and I'm in the airport in Toronto. And I'm, I'm sure people, when they hear this, they're not even going to believe this story. So I'm in Toronto. I'm waiting for my connector back to Washington, D.C. I'm, st- I'm just standing there with my wife. My wife's from South Korea. And um, we're sitting there. We're talking. We've got our kids. And who walks up? Who's walking up right towards us? Newt Gingrich. Okay. And I'm, I'm like, no way. This is crazy. You know, Newt Gingrich walks right up. And he's there on his phone. And I look at him. And this is not, this is, we're not going to talk politics. Okay. 
I'm not going to say I'm a Republican, I'm a, a Democrat or anything like that. I am, I am nothing. Okay, folks. Newt Gingrich walks up and I say, hey, Newt, how's it going? He goes, doing good. And he goes back to his phone and he finishes up typing up a, a message. And my wife's, you know, she's not familiar with Newt Gingrich. She's seen him on TV, but it just didn't register. And so she, she looks at me and she's like, oh, it must be somebody he knows, you know, from work or something. So she just grabbed the kids and walked away. And so he was done. And I said, hey, so what's going on? Where are you heading? And so he was just, you know, some small chat. And he says, oh, what do you do? I said, oh, I do some financial stuff. And as soon as I told him that, and that's all I said, I just, oh, I do some financial stuff. And he goes, well, what do you think about Bitcoin? Wow. <laughs> that was his first comment to me. I didn't bring it up. I didn't say nothing. So I, I said, well, I, I think it's uh, some revolutionary stuff. I think that it's uh, going to turn some places upside down. And he goes, yeah, I just bought some uh, Bitcoins for my kids. And I said, wow. I said, oh, really? And it was a 25-minute conversation with Newt Gingrich about Bitcoin. That's incredible. It was crazy. And so then I got on the, I, I went over there. I, I said to my wife, I said, do you know who that was? And she goes, no, but he looks really familiar. I said, that was Newt Gingrich. And she goes, oh, yeah, that, I've seen him on TV. I said, yeah, that's the guy, the former Speaker of the House. And so, um, dude, it was insane. This was probably in June. It's insane. Uh, so his kids are very fortunate. They've, they've got some good paper gains now. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but uh, you know, for me, it was kind of surprising. Um, yeah, you know, but yeah, that's all he wanted to talk about for twenty five minutes, and then the, you know, the, the flight was a little bit delayed, and then we got on the plane, and that was it. He's, he was sitting up there in first class. That's great. So anyway, I that was a total tangent, but it was an interesting story that happened to <laughs> that, me, that and I and story. it was uh, kind of crazy, but um, you know, whatever. Uh, that's all I had for tonight. I, you know, uh, if you're listening to this, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know we went a little longer than I was kind of expecting. We went a whole hour and a half here, but, um, uh, Pierre and I want to start doing this, uh, once a week on Monday nights at nine 30 Eastern time. And, um, we'd love to have you guys join us live. And if you don't join us live, Pierre's going to run the conversation on his podcast. He's, he's already doing his show with Michael, and uh, these discussions, he's going to take this and he's just going to put the raw feed out there. I don't know which day of the week, but maybe Wednesday or Thursday or something like that for people to hear. So uh, we would love to have you guys join us for the live conversation. And if not, you guys can check it out on the Noted podcast. The link for Noted podcast is down in the uh, the lower bar here underneath the video feed. So I would highly recommend you guys go there, go to iTunes, subscribe to his show. He has incredible guests. And uh, I'm just honored to be a part of uh, your show here, Pierre. Uh, seriously, thanks for uh, for doing this with me. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, this was great. And I think that so the the other uh, noted podcast episodes are more technical, and this is much more financial. So I think that we'll uh, hit both groups. Yeah, absolutely. So, folks, this is what I'll tell you. Save your questions, write down your questions, and then tune in at 9.30 Eastern Time, Monday nights, and hit us up because we're reading the feeds here. We're seeing exactly what you guys are writing. But uh, we, we're so thrilled to have you guys here. Thanks for uh, tuning in. And uh, please subscribe to both of our, our podcasts and our channels and our Twitter feeds and everything that's down there. And, and we really enjoyed this. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, everyone. And thanks, Preston, for setting this up. <laughs>